0: Good morning. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And we are welcome in this place. Join with me in the call to worship responsibly. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. God of God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing to God, sing praises. sing praises to our King. sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Is the, God is the nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we draw near to you with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, we pray that you will draw near to us and inhabit the praises of your people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
1: time so far but as you'll notice in the service there are a lot of changes today that's just a precursor. I wanted to say it's good to see you all and there are many visitors many family visitors I think 20 or some Houghton College alumni from the 1970s that means they all look rather young and uh, we welcome you all and greet one another would you? Let's see if I can get through this without the microphone falling again. We don't like to overwhelm you with announcements, but I do want to just make a word of reminder about this week's refresh conference and camp for our Western New York District of Wesleyan Churches. A lot of times our Houghton Church just takes it for granted. Of course, there's a morning worship time in the Chamberlain Atrium with uh, Steve Dunmire leading the worship. Some of you know how wonderful that can be. At 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, two different sessions of seminars. And I just have looked at those seminars. There are about 20 different topics. Some of them go all four mornings at 10 o'clock or all four mornings at uh, 11. But many of them are two days or even one day. Uh, Some of the people who are giving those seminars, I just think you should note, Mike Walters is giving a four-day seminar at 10 o'clock. Terry Page is giving a two day seminar on the Book of Thessalonians, a very interesting topic. I'm not trying to just promote one, but I just the topic caught me. Being the church in a hostile political, religious, and cultural environment, a study from the Book of Church at Thessalonica. Uh, there's a study in the missionary journeys, there's missionary speakers, the missionary journeys of Paul. The main camp speaker is doing a series on the doctrine of atonement. In case you have those hours, 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, there are some folders in the back table and down by the Welcome Center that have the complete schedule of these seminars. And, of course, there are afternoon activities and the evening rallies. I just want to remind you at Houghton, we have a rich opportunity at very little cost if you register for $10, or maybe you don't. That's up to your ethical uh, standards. But... uh, (laughs) These seminars are worth the price of admission, even if it is free. All right? Thank you very much. Bless the worship.
2: Please stand as we worship together.
3: We want to be close. the earth, may strain the heart a path for the Lord, Jesus is God.
0: The Old Testament reading is a different passage than in your bulletin. I have checked, and you do have permission to read the listed passage on your own. <clears throat> a reading from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, and verses 16 to 18. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to join and sing the doxology as the ushers come forward to receive our offerings. Father God, you have blessed us so richly, most abundantly in the gift of your Son, our Savior. Of the material blessings that you give us each day, we return now a small part as a symbol of our gratitude and our obedience to you through Christ our Lord.
3: Cheers.
1: time for prayer. It's a very important part of our time together when corporately we come to the throne of grace. I'll be leading. I'm going to be at the altar. If you want to join me, feel free. King of heaven, we gather to say that you are our treasure, our pearl of great price. You are our wisdom and our hope and our salvation. And you're worthy of our praise and adoration, which we humbly bring you this day. Lord Jesus, you're the coming king. Hear our prayers today, our prayers of confession and our prayers of petition we do acknowledge how far we fall short in thought, word, and deed. But we thank you for your grace and your mercy, which plants in our hearts the desire for fellowship with you. And by the Holy Spirit, our guide and our counselor, we can walk faithfully with you. Thank you for this week in the past, and thank you for the week ahead. Our needs are many, our world, our leaders of our governments, locally, state, and our nation, and the leaders of the world, it seems like they're scrambling for answers and not always able to work together. Lord, you've asked us to pray, and we pray for our leaders. Pray for your church around the world. We've been singing about your church. We long for your coming. We want to be ready for your coming. And we seem to fall short. But in many places, the light is shining. In hard places, in difficult places. Help the church as a corporate body and help individuals who are your bride to be faithful to you. Be with the persecuted church in difficult places. I learned this week of one of our fellow brothers in Christ suddenly disappeared in a land in North Africa. And friends have asked us to pray for him, that he'll be discovered where he is, that he'll be safe, that you'll bless his family. Lord, we pray this week for Don Little and Ben and Christine Hegeman as they have just arrived in um, Lagos, Nigeria, and they are going to be equipping and ministering to hundreds of pastors and workers who work in the Muslim world. Pray that you give them strength, wisdom, and uh, just help them to be real help to those who are serving you in these places, some of them very difficult. Think today of our uh, mission team from this church, intergenerational team, parents and, and children who are just now today arriving in Minnesota to work amongst the uh, Red Lake Indian Reservation there, amongst the people people you love. Lord, may people see the love of Christ in these folks, our friends, as they do humble work in the name of Jesus. Make them a blessing and and be a blessing to them in all that they do. Think of our churches around us, not only this church, but churches back home for some here this morning and churches in this area. And today we pray for the Vine Church in uh, near Buffalo. And Pastor Chris and Tammy Baldwin, make them uh, a rich place of witness and testimony for you. And Lord, we've mentioned the Refresh Camp this week. Hundreds of people gather at Houghton from our western New York area. Be with the speakers, be with the worship leaders, our own uh, folks from Houghton who are helping, participating in seminars. And may all of it, Serve to glorify you and enrich and disciple people, be closer to you and better servants where they serve you. Lord, we have personal needs. We mentioned that we have many needs. Some of them are almost too deep for us to utter. You know our list of people who are grieving and have special needs. You know them all by name, but today, particularly, I'd like to pray for Alice Brown. Cindy Odin's mother, for Jerry, her husband, and for the Odins in particular during this time of her special need and their time of uh, away from the church. Give them rest, give them hope, give them peace, give them wisdom as they deal with this special need. Pray for Nancy Cole, for John and the family during this time of special need. Pray for a Bill Getty who right now is undergoing major cancer treatment. We pray for him in the hospital in Buffalo. We pray for Tom Gould in the nursing home, who's had serious uh, health concerns just recently. And so there are many others, but we lift these particularly to you as a congregation. Be with each one of those needs that are on our hearts today. Times of transition, times of decision-making. Lord, help us in this time in our need. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for the message from your word from our sister, Sarah Dirk. Speak to us today and hear us as we speak to you, our praise, our worship, and our petitions. We pray in Jesus' name, the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.
0: The Gospel reading is from John 17, verses 20 to 23. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. After uh, we begin singing, children may be dismissed for Children's Church.
2: 16 years of preaching, I have never once changed my topic and my text after the service was planned. Until now. And I have been looking forward to preaching about Leah and Rachel for several weeks now, so I do commend that passage to you from Genesis chapter 29. Um, But some of you know that in my life as an Old Testament scholar, I have spent the last few years researching the book of Ruth, and even though I sent my manuscript on Ruth off to the editor several weeks ago, the truth is that she will not let me go. So that when I sat down earlier this week with Leah and Rachel, Ruth kept poking her head into our conversation. And since that cheeky Moabite never was a shy and retiring one, we will give her our attention in a few moments. Two weeks ago, Mike Jordan preached about unity from Ephesians 4, and we just sang about it. And he urged us to pursue the kinds of loving relationships with each other and with a watching world that would bear the weight of truth-telling. Paul called it unity. In the prayer that our Paul just read for us from John 17, Christ called it being made one being made one with each other and with the Father. And so I am curious this morning what this unity in the Spirit or oneness in Christ looks like on the ground. How do we know when we have been made one with each other? What are the signs that we are on our way to oneness with Jesus? Assuming that he was serious when he said every tree shall be known by its fruit, what kind of fruit does a church characterized by oneness produce? In the passage we just heard, Jesus' prayer for his followers, he answered that question pretty clearly. He prayed that all of them may be one so that the world may believe. Believe that you, the Father, has sent me, the Savior. He went on to say it again, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. The fruit of our oneness is believability. If we allow God to make us one with Christ and one with each other, we will convince the world of the otherwise far-fetched truth that Jesus really was who he said he was. Not just a wise man, not just a good teacher, not just a social reformer, not just a miracle worker or a prophet, but the very Son of God. In other words, the truthfulness of the gospel depends not on our apologetics, not on our ability to debate well, not on proving that the miracles really happened, but on our unity. Jesus claimed that if we could live in oneness, the world could not help but believe that he was sent by God. So, you know, not much at stake, really. So how do you think we are doing, church? Are we, the body of Christ, characterized by oneness? We lament the downfall of Christianity in these United States, but whose fault is that? Is it those liberals or those conservatives? Is it the permissiveness and vulgarity of human culture these days? Is it the rise of alternative moralities, of entitlement or consumerism or the internet. Of course, these dynamics are all involved. But something else is clearly at work, too. I suspect that our failure to live in oneness with Christ and with each other has made the astonishing claims of the gospel simply unbelievable to those watching our lives. How can Jesus possibly save anyone from sin, brokenness, disease, from addiction or mental illness, if, if he cannot even teach his followers to get along with others, they are saying. Why should they bother with Jesus when his followers are sometimes the most fractious, bickering, peevish squabblers around? Lord, help us. So what does it take to bear the fruit of oneness in our daily lives? Quite simply, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to offer love instead of hate to that Facebook opponent. Joy instead of bitterness when someone else gets accolades. Patience, uh, peace instead of panic when our world is rocked by a diagnosis. Patience instead of irritability in a traffic jam. Kindness instead of scorn to the one who let us down. Generosity instead of stinginess to the refugee in need. Faithfulness instead of flaking out on our co-workers. Gentleness instead of harshness to our children. Self-control instead of self-indulgence with our time and money. Oneness with Christ It is possible it is offered to us by the holy spirit it is the work of god in us we will know it has taken hold of us when we find that we care for others instead of ourselves and that our care for them is ridiculously recklessly outlandishly more important to us than taking care of ourselves With our very believability at stake, we need models of oneness in action. Where are people so committed to oneness that they risk everything, dig in, and actually succeed? You know, that's not easy to find, that kind of a model. Which is why, when it does happen, people are convinced about Jesus. The entire New Testament seems to me like one long quest for oneness. The disciples of Jesus sure did not get it right, at least not right away. James and John wanted to be first. Judas betrayed them all, and Peter went running for the shadows. Paul spent his entire career and much of his letters urging unity and oneness in the newborn church as he and the other apostles brought together Jew and Gentile, pious and pagan, Rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all under the rule of the resurrected Christ. One body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith and one baptism. There are certainly other places in scripture where this kind of oneness is sought, but this is where Ruth has been speaking to me this week. You may feel quite familiar with her and her story, but this morning I'd like to invite you into it with some new questions. What might Ruth teach us, not just about life in ancient Israel, but about life in Christ? What kind of people will we become if we seek the good of others, so much so that we actually find oneness with each other and with Christ? I suggest that we will become very much like Ruth. We will care so much about being one with Christ and each other that we will not care how risky it is to walk with others. And we will not care how much work it takes to achieve their well-being. And we will not care what other people think of us along the way. And in the process, we, like Ruth, will inspire others to join with us. And find unity and oneness emerging in our midst. I would like to focus this morning on the risks that Ruth took to seek oneness with Naomi. As we explore the first chapter of this perfect little story, we will allow it to ask some questions of us What would it take to seek oneness like Ruth did? What's stopping you? What are the risks of oneness with Christ for you? What are the risks of oneness with each other for this church? What work is God giving you to do on behalf of others? And what will others think of you if you do it? And will you do it anyway? Let's begin by setting the stage for Ruth's great risk taking. Did you know that this story is actually misnamed? Uh, It's actually a story all about an old woman and her terrible trouble. Now, Ruth, she comes to the rescue, but this is clearly Naomi's story. Every chapter ends with a scene of conversation between Naomi and some women. And every scene solves a problem for Naomi. So I invite you now to open to the book of Ruth with me. It opens like many good Israelite tales do. A man takes his family on a journey. But within the first five verses, all the men are dead, and all that's left is a poor widow stranded in hostile territory, saddled with two foreign and apparently barren daughters in law. So, the first verse things were bad enough to begin with, tragedy upon tragedy. In the days when the judges ruled, this should cue scary music in your mind. Dun, dun, dun. Remember, the days when the judges ruled are the days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Seven times the Israelites succumbed to the cycle of disobedience and power grabbing, and they were conquered by their enemies until they cried out again, And the Lord sent them a judge who rescued them from their enemies. And as long as the judge was alive, the Israelites behaved. But when the judge died, they succumbed again to disobedience. And with every instance of that cycle, the depravity and violence escalated. And so by the time you get to the end of Judges, chapter 17 to 21, tell these three stories. A priest who sells his services. The horrific violation and death of the Levite's concubine. Resulting in all out civil war and the near destruction of one of the 12 tribes. That's what Ruth is set in, that era. But not only was it a rough era, there was famine in the land, in the land of milk and honey. In the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread, there was no bread. Famine equaled punishment in the ancient perspective. The Israelites were suffering the results of their crimes and their uh, faithlessness. And so a man from Bethlehem went to Moab. There is our third tragedy. Because Israel's contact with their kin in Moab was fraught. The Moabites were suspect. They were born from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters-in-law. Their women seduced Israel's men at the town of Shittim into, wish, into worshiping their own god, and 24,000 men of Israel were killed as a punishment. Moab controlled Israel for 18 years during this era of the Judges. One of those Moabite women eventually married King Solomon, and she was part of his downfall because he built a temple to her god in Jerusalem and then went and worshipped there with her. The Moabites worshipped many gods, but their chief was Chemosh, and Chemosh demanded child sacrifice. In one battle between the nations, Moab's king sacrificed his own son on the city wall. And so given this heavy history between Israel and Moab, a sojourn to Moab was most unsuitable for an Israelite family. Only the greatest desperation would have driven them there. In one verse, tragedy upon tragedy, but it just keeps going. First, Elimelech dies in Moab, leaving Naomi and their sons to fend for themselves in Moab. They eventually took wives, Moabite wives, This was a violation of Israelite law, which forbade Israelites from marrying foreigners. And after 10 years, there were still no grandchildren. But then the sons died too, in Moab. Five verses in, all Naomi's menfolk are dead, and she is alone in Moab. The daughters-in-law don't count. They aren't even mentioned there in verse 5. Because no one expects a Moabite to help this stranded, pitiful woman. Do you know anyone like Naomi? Someone who seems to attract trouble? Someone whose life is dogged by trauma? Naomi gets a lot of flack for being bitter, but who wouldn't be after the life that she lived? But then she heard that the famine was over, and she set out from home. And so we heard in verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Orpah and Ruth were all set to go with her. Let's pause here and consider the magnitude of this decision. First of all, with all the husbands dead, these women were no longer legally bound to each other. Contrary to popular opinion, With both Mahlon and Kilion dead, no one in Israel was required to marry Ruth. The best chances for these three women was to go their separate ways. Marriage offered the only security for most women in the ancient world, and Ruth and Orpah stood the best chance of remarrying in their own country where they were insiders. Naomi said as much herself in verses 8 and 9. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, and may you find rest in the home of another husband. Any slim hope these barren widows had for remarriage lay in Moab. But even for Naomi, life would be easier in the long run on her own. Even worse, uh, in in that culture, if she accepted their company, she was assuming responsibility for them. And even worse, she was showing up back home with the evidence of her son's sinful, fruitless marriages in tow, bringing home two members of the enemy in this tumultuous era of the judges. Why? Why would Orpah and Ruth even want to go with her— Would you want to tie your life to that trouble magnet that you thought of a moment ago? Would you leave your own country to move to enemy territory where you would always be the outsider? We trust God in this story, but if you were Ruth and Orpah, would you move into the territory of a God who clearly has not prevented Naomi from suffering and who might not be very welcoming of a worshiper of Chemosh? Why do they do it? Well, Naomi tells us this herself. In verse 8, they loved her. That word kindness, the kindness that you have shown to me, that's that, that's our old friend Chesed. That's that fierce love that seeks the good of others at all costs. So both Orpah and Ruth had a track record of love toward Naomi and her sons. They knew she needed them, even if she didn't yet. Their youth, their strength, their vitality and ability to work, they would save her life. But wanting to go her own way, Naomi got desperate, painting an absolutely ridiculous picture. She couldn't get them new husbands, even if she gave birth to them herself. And then in verse 13, she turned a little bit sharp blaming God outright for all of her trouble. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. Do you know anyone like that? Someone who insists their trouble is worse than everyone else's? Who argues irrationally and tries to send everyone away so they can suffer in a noble but pitiful isolation? Is that the kind of person you want to seek oneness with? Because this is when Ruth did something absolutely reckless in pursuit of oneness with someone she loved. Orpah did the wise thing. She went back home, where she at least stood a chance of remarrying. But Ruth tied herself irrevocably to this pitiful, bitter trouble magnet with a dried-up womb, a dead family, and nothing but a hometown full of Israelites. Let's read these beautiful words of commitment again in verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. We are used to hearing these words at a wedding, but consider their original source. This speech was made by a Moabite to an Israelite, her mother-in-law, no less. Here is one of the hard truths about oneness, about unity. It's only even necessary because we are so different from one another. And very often, God has the gall to call us to oneness with a Moabite. This Israelite had absolutely nothing to offer Ruth. The very vocabulary of her speech in Hebrew reflects its recklessness. It could be translated, wherever you end up, I'll be there. And wherever you find to spend the night, I will be there. Your people... Those were enemies, remember? Your God? She doesn't even know if he's worth following yet. Where you die, I will be buried? Naomi is a generation older than Ruth, but when she dies, Ruth isn't going to go off to seek her own fortune. She will tend Naomi's grave and then get into it herself. Even more astonishingly, this isn't just an impassioned speech made in the heat of the moment to convince Naomi to let her go along. This is a formal, legally binding vow, sworn in the name of Yahweh and complete with a punishment should Ruth fail to keep it. Vows in Israel were only binding as long as both parties were alive. But Ruth went beyond all reason, swearing to stand by Naomi even in death. Our own marriage vows don't go that far. This vow is over-the-top, completely unreasonable, totally unnecessary. It rendered Naomi speechless. We often think of the book of Ruth as a love story. Desperate Ruth meets noble Boaz, and they live happily ever after. But this vow actually went a long way toward preventing any future marriage for Ruth, No man in his right mind would marry a foreign, barren widow who came with another, older, needier widow. Ruth signed her life away to Naomi, seeking oneness with a bitter widow whom she loved and who needed her, but who didn't know it yet. This story isn't about finding a husband for Ruth, it's about finding a future for Naomi through the insistence of Ruth and her flabbergasting hesed. So here's the rub. Oneness sounds great, as long as it's oneness with the right people. I mean, yeah, I want to be made one with Pastor Wes and Cindy. They're great people, right? But do I have to be made one with somebody like Naomi? Someone whose life is falling apart? who pushes me away, who is just plain irrational and so, so empty of anything that could benefit me, someone who blames the God I'm trying to follow, I don't know if I have that in me, frankly, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But this is exactly what Ruth did. She pursued permanent oneness with the most unlikely person around. It was a huge risk. In that world, she was cutting ties and saying goodbye to her home forever. She was hitching her wagon to someone with nothing to offer, devoting her life to the service of someone who had lost everything and didn't even want her help. In all likelihood, these two widows would limp into Bethlehem if they even got there, and then keep moving. This was the era of the judges, after all. And women on their own were extremely vulnerable. Israel was not always keeping its own law, so the structures and customs set up to care for widows and orphans and foreigners, these could not necessarily be depended on. Ruth was, to all intents and purposes, choosing a life of poverty to help Naomi survive it. And here is where we can let Ruth's story interrogate us a little bit if we are brave enough. Do you identify more with Ruth or Naomi this morning? Are you Ruth with a lot to offer in the pursuit of unity? Are you Naomi needing someone to stand in unity with you? As we seek oneness with Christ and with each other, what is Christ inviting you to? Is oneness with Christ or with others hard because you push people away? Or because it's too risky? Or because it involves people who are hard to love? Or because you will have to suffer? Or because oneness with anyone else seems totally irrational in our individualistic world? Now, Let me give you a little spoiler alert here. Uh, Ruth continued risking everything for Naomi's well-being. She risked harassment and assault by showing up in Boaz's field because Naomi needed food. She put herself in a terribly compromising position that night on the threshing floor because Naomi needed a permanent home. She put her body through the dangers of pregnancy and childbirth in the ancient world because Naomi and Elimelech needed a lineage. She risked everything, sweated it out in the sun and heat for weeks, and dismissed the threats to her honor and reputation, all in order to weave her life together with Naomi's. But her best intentions for oneness were not enough, and neither are yours and mine. All of Ruth's desire to join her life to Naomi's would have come to nothing if not for the hand of God in their story. Ruth and Naomi... Were welcomed and joined by others whom God brought alongside them. And God's providence and miraculous provision resulted in an astonishing sense of belonging together. These two childless widows ended up ancestresses of Christ. Not on their own merit, but because God partnered with them. And so, in the same way, we can depend on the Holy Spirit to nurture the oneness that we know we are incapable of ourselves. I would remind you that Jesus promised whatever we ask in his name would be given to help us bear fruit. We can trust God to give what we need for oneness with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I invite you to join me uh, in a few moments of contemplation as we close this morning. If you'd like to close your eyes and pray, you may. And I have some questions for you again. I invite you to ask the Lord to highlight for you this morning. Is there anything keeping you from oneness with Christ or from oneness with your brothers and sisters? What do you need? To be able to offer oneness to others? Which of those fruits of the Spirit that I listed earlier do you need more of if you're going to be made one with Christ and others? Do you need more love? More joy? More peace or patience? More kindness or generosity? Do you need more faithfulness or gentleness or self control? What risks is God asking you to take so that we may be one? May it be so.
1: We stand for our closing hymn. Just your bulletin. receive the benediction may the peace of god which transcends all wisdom all understanding guard your hearts and minds in the lord jesus christ amen